0: Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. We've officially made it to the second week of January. I'm not going to talk about the week it is because I feel like I open that way every time. On last week's episode, I talked about two very large breaches that had happened recently. One was with over 400 million at the time accounts breached from Twitter with emails and phone numbers attached, the ones that were registered to each of those Twitter accounts. And the other one was much scarier to me, and that is the LastPass breach. It was the third headline about a data breach at LastPass over the last several months. And so I think maybe some people had fatigue on that, but really it was the most important. And that was that they discovered that security researchers and LastPass did disclose it amid the fog of the holiday time and that middle time between Christmas and New Year's, especially in the U.S. It's very quiet then. They did announce that it was a lot worse than they thought. And we learned from that news that potentially millions of consumers' password vaults can be obtained through what was uh what was taken in the data breach and what was exposed. That means it's not just one password that fraudsters can hope that users are reusing or a handful of passwords that they're hoping that they can reuse or they can figure out, okay, it's always around the same name and similar numbers and have a starting point to guess or use a password cracker or phishing all the methods to get. It was actually their vault, which contains the exact passwords for every account. That they have online, which to me is terrifying, especially for financial institutions and banks and anywhere where money is stored or transferred and also e-commerce. And there's just so many ways that information can be used and really do a lot of damage, not just to consumers, but obviously businesses too. That's why most of you listen. And so uh, I don't know. It, there was a little bit of LinkedIn chatter around both of those breaches. However, I didn't really see much about the last pass breach, which I thought was really interesting. There were a handful of posts that I saw, and I don't see everything on LinkedIn, though that is my only social media that I use on a regular basis these days. I mean, maybe that makes me old and boring, but I'll own it. But I saw a few about Twitter, and there was one in particular that really caught my attention. And it made me realize that maybe we aren't all on the same page. Maybe this is something that we need to talk about. Maybe this is worth the podcast episode. On today's episode, I'm going to answer the question, do data breaches actually turn into fraud? Is that actually what happens? Or will fraud happen because of a data breach? Or is there just so much information out there now that it doesn't matter anymore? And the reason I'm asking that question on today's episode is because there was Someone that posted that on LinkedIn. And it was a little surprising to me to read it last week from someone who has a fairly significant high title in fraud prevention and fraud analytics for a very large financial institution. I always enjoy learning from other thought leaders. And I've seen a few news headlines that I didn't know about before by following this person. And so I read their post. It was actually right before I was going out to dinner with some very good friends of mine that were in town from out of town, and it just caught me off guard. Like, what? I almost felt like it was irresponsible. But I'm really going to dive into it. So first, I should probably read that post, what I was, where I was thinking, and why I wanted to do this episode. So I'm not going to call them out by name. That's just not my idea. And I actually appreciate it because it gave me a great topic for today's episode. And I've done more research on this than I probably would have just because I want to make sure that I get it right and that I provide fairly balanced information. And let you guys make up your mind. And I love, I really want to hear everybody's opinion on this after the episode. More than probably any other episode I've done in a while, because it's fascinating to me when you just assume that everybody believes the same thing or knows the same thing. And I talk to so many merchants, enterprise merchants especially, who are acutely aware of specific data that's out there because of data breaches. And they often see the effect of that cause in their, in everything they're dealing with in fraud. And so they make the assumption that, okay, it's because that's information has been breached, but maybe there's more to it. So here is the, the post that got a little reaction from me. The first was in the bracket that said, go back and add a snide comment about how the Twitter link won't change anything. And then they start and say, the latest Twitter leak slash hack slash breach is a big one, right? So big that it will meaningfully change the state of fraud in the world? Nope. Every time there's a large leak or breach, I see a lot of cries that the sky is falling. Yet it never does. 2021 saw several billion records breached across the globe. Before that, the numbers add up to bigger than my solar calculator will accept. How will adding sale data to less than, that's less than 1% to that really change anything? I'm skipping a part here just because there's, Stuff about like breaches specifically, but then it does say well, when it's basically like say, they're saying, like, if you if it's a company that you really like, you won't think it's a big deal. If it's a company you really don't like, then one of the villains, if one of the villains gets hit with data breaches, a vil, like a villain company in your mind, then people assume the sky is falling and it's all their fault. There will be fraud. I haven't noticed that opinions matter on who the company is, but that might be. I don't know. I'm just that might be the case that there are some people who the company you like, you don't care about it as much. I think for me, I would think if it's the company you like and that you use, you would probably care about it more. But I think everybody's opinion is valid. It's just worth digging into sometimes. So going back to their post, the thing is, there was always going to be fraud. Specific users were always going to be targeted. If the recent Twitter leak of two-year-old email addresses causes even one incremental fraud event, I'll be shocked. All this information was already out there in a general sense, and for anyone being targeted, a targeted attack will always succeed. The sky is fine. Twitter is fine. The accounts with leaked emails will be as fine as they always would have been. In a few weeks, this will be just one more mid-sized bubble on the vast world's biggest data breaches graphic. And then they provided a few links about each of those things for sourcing. And I do agree that Maybe this isn't the biggest, I actually think the last past one is probably going to impact a lot more change in fraud than Twitter will. But every time there's a data breach, I think that there's an issue. The way yeah. I responded, like I said, I was on my way to dinner, so I was a little like, I have so much more to add to this now. But just to give you full picture, I said, I respectfully disagree. And I agree with you that there's a lot of data out there already. But that doesn't mean that every single piece of every single consumer's data is or was already available to every single person or group that has the will and know-how to monetize that data, especially in 2023 when we've seen a drastic increase in the number of people committing online fraud since they discovered Telegram groups and cut their teeth on pee and an implant fraud. I believe that specific data breaches still have consequences within the online fraud industry and in some cases national security. Number one, some breaches are or were state-sponsored the data will be mined to identify any targets within government or big businesses to exploit or compromise. In at least one of those cases, we saw fraudsters placing online orders to government employees to verify the physical address information was correct. I believe I talked about that on an episode last year, maybe a year and a half ago now, because I remember who gave me that information or, or the case that it was related to, but essentially, uh, If a fraudster had an address to someone they wanted to verify that they lived there, one way to do it would be to order an item to be sent to their house. Then they're the ones who are getting the confirmation email that it was delivered because they set up their own email address. And so they're able to see, oh, okay. First they'll see the order is approved, so they have a fairly good idea that address and name probably goes together based on a database, but if it's actually delivered, And that gives them a little bit more pace that it's there. And I'm not saying that because i watched too many spy movies. I I have very credible sources. And this one in particular is insanely credible. That's exactly what was happening. So scary. But then I'll go on to comment. And yes, it was long, but I was feeling passionate too. But as far as intentional payment fraud, there have been countless times when enterprise merchants have seen a sudden spike in specific fraud methods, and they contact me to see if I've heard of a new list of data circulating. Often that's the case. And what I mean by that, and I'll dive into it a little bit more, is we see specific types of data being breached. And then within weeks or months, oh, now we're seeing that data, the type of fraud that correlates with that type of data being used is being used in that way. And there are other sources that can help merchants or banks verify that information was indeed compromised through a breach. There's a few different sources, actually, whether it's through a paid dark web intelligence company, a crime intelligence company that mines those things, or through going to haveibeenpwned.com, you can find out if that information has been done. Now, obviously, banks and merchants can't do that on every single order. That, they, that goes through their system on a manual basis, but that's why those, those vendors exist and why some companies rely on them. Did put an asterisk there that it's really important to know what the company's data sources are when you're talking to companies like that, because not all public information on dark web and compromised breach information is actually valuable. And there are some that have access to more things that aren't public, that might be more helpful to your business. But, just putting that asterisk there. Okay, so I'm sorry, I'm still reading my response. New types of data exposed equals new methods of fraud, whether that's ATO, phishing scams to gain credentials or deploy one-time password bots, identity theft, password to legitimate data to create synthetic accounts, to open new deposit accounts for check fraud, P2P fraud, etc. Peer-to-peer fraud is P2P fraud. And different groups will obtain different groupings of data from various data breaches. I hosted my bi weekly call with 20-plus enterprise retailers today, and the two latest data breaches, Twitter and LastPass, were topics of conversation. Why? Because most of these retailers have consistently seen spikes of specific fraud methods based on the sets of data exposed from prior data breaches. Just like when I was saying a minute ago. I forgot that I put that in the comment. I also believe, at least I'm consistent, right? I also believe that if there were no monetary incentive for hackers to go to great lengths to expose large amounts of data... They wouldn't do it because if they already had all the data they ever needed already, why would they spend time and resources to find new wells of PI or personal identified information or identifiable information? And I said, I hope that you're not suggesting that we as an industry, I hope you're not suggesting that we as an industry should become apathetic to data security. I'll never shrug my shoulders whenever millions of PI are released into the wild because, from my viewpoint, they still lead to a lot of fraud related consequences for merchants, banks, and crypto companies. So, that was my opinion, and really is my opinion still. That why, if it wasn't valuable, why would it keep happening? As well as, there's not one core database of every single breached information for fraudsters. And if there are, not all of them have access to it. And also, the more new types of fraud methods that people discover, the more the more different data sets they need. I'll use the example. I was gonna use it later on in this conversation, but account takeovers weren't a big thing at all prior to around 2012, 2013. I think they were in the banking world. So I apologize for that. But they really weren't in e-commerce or marketplaces or other things. Because after the breach in Target especially and Home Depot, and I guess that was a year or two later, but Right around then, it was 2013, and I only remember that because of where I was working at the time. We started to see that credit card numbers didn't have as much value to thieves because they change. And they can change quickly. And the point of compromise can be identified, and issuing banks can cancel those cards proactively. Also, they change. Now, granted, I do actually know that there's even one very large bank right now that many cardholders are having issues where their cards are being compromised. The first one's compromised Then the new reissued one is compromised before they can even use it. And then the next one is, I was actually going to talk about that this week, but I'll talk about that next week or in the week after about why that can happen and why card numbers can be discovered. And there's a few different ways that can happen. So I think it might be interesting to dive into, but basically they realized, oh, we can get a lot more bang for our buck or we can monetize a lot more. It's a lot less hassle or effort if we just Compromise, if we just asked well, hackers or demand or whatever, there was more demand in the market for data from data breaches that had username and password, knowing that most consumers reuse their passwords, especially back then. And that was really when we saw account takeover. But it wasn't until the data that was being breached changed. And I don't. it's a chicken and an egg thing. I'm not 100% sure if it was the hackers getting that data and fraudsters figuring out how to monetize it. Or if it was sponsors saying, hey, get me this data and I'll pay you a lot of money. And it probably depends on the timeline. So another commented on this as well, because I think they saw me comment on it. I'm not going to go into every single comment on this post, but I did want to just read the the original poster's reply to me and to the other merchant. And this first line is the reason why I didn't reply further. And that's okay. I just, I realized, oh, okay, so this may not be just for like good discussion be for something else. And that's okay. We all are on LinkedIn for different reasons. But they replied, I thought this one might get some bites. I want to preface this by saying that I genuinely appreciate the disagreement. More than any of my own opinions, I'm driven by a desire to get to front truths that have yet to be uncovered. And I'm happy to admit, having been on the wrong side of any as we get to answers. It's probably worth mentioning that I also don't believe that there's an explosion of fraud. Fraud risk is a measure of fraud volume over valid volume, and fraud reports rarely measure that. Raw volume alone is a misleading number. But to the merchant's point, if your strategy relies on an operational team um, in any way, then you're constantly at risk of being underwater as your company sales go up, even if your actual risk has gone down. Part of why I moved into purely fraud products after so long running a full operations strategy product and analysis organization as a merchant is because I believe I see a better way, a way that isn't volume or breach sensitive. Could I be wrong? Sure. But I believe that the idea enough, I believe in the idea enough that I want to give it a shot. I see so many merchants saddled with those limitations and I think I can help. As far as the breach impact to fraud, I've done several large scale analysis projects across multiple breaches and fraud trends and have yet to see a measurable impact and certainly not immediately following a breach. I haven't seen any analysis on the other side of that view, only anecdotal accounts. Our industry is way overdue for a full deep analysis of these tenants, challenging many of them in another area where I could be off track, but I devour fraud data and reports and I have yet to see anything even attempting to accurately quantify those concepts okay so that's all that and this is not me like trying to blast anyone I just I thought okay this is genuine conversation this is a question clearly if one person has it there might be more that have it now I think it's interesting given the large financial institution that they work for that they were allowed to say this contrary opinion or that it was just because I think that it could easily be misread that this was the company's opinion. I also feel, and they probably have access to a lot of data, but you're not always going to see a one-to-one, right? It's not always going to be, okay, this username and password was briefed at this location. And then a month later, we're going to see that exact same username and password used at another company. And not everyone has that, the view of everything, right? It's very segmented, depending on... If you're a bank, an issuer, a card brand, a merchant, a a vendor, whatever, you're not going to have the full landscape of the entire ecosystem for anything. Even if you are a card brand, there's another card brand. Even if you are a very large bank and you see both card brands, you're not seeing everything else and you're not, you're certainly not seeing the in-depth data for everyone else in the ecosystem too. So we're not ever going to get to a one-to-one where, okay, that's exactly it. But I do believe that, and I know that there's a lot of data from breaches that are Frankenstein together. Okay, we get this email over here, and this phone number over there, and this address there, et cetera, to create a rich database. We see those used often, and I think that this is not the only data breaches are not the only source of fraud by any chance. But they're also not something to just shrug our shoulders at either, in my opinion. And that's where I'm coming from. And like I said, I'm not sharing their name or their post out of respect. Like I do think it's good to have discourse and to challenge each other's views if we think that it's wanted. And it's a, an opportunity to challenge my own long-term belief that data breaches lead to monetization of the data, which equals fraud and usually online. I wanted to know if my long held beliefs were out of date. So I argue gave you my reply. So first, I wanted to circle back on the Twitter breach because I think that's worthwhile here. On last week's episode, I mentioned that there was a hacker threatening to release the exposed data of over 400 million accounts. Since then, and it was right around when the episode was published. And so sometimes that happens. I'm like, that was the information I had at the time, and things are changing all the time. Since then, over 200 million user account details were released into the open, and it's been widely circulated. So while it seemed like he was holding it for ransom to Elon Musk, then he just kind of threw it out there to everyone, which can be good and bad. In some cases, like there will be so many attempts that people can flag them really quickly because so many different people will be doing it. But then again, The smart people will wait a while and then they'll mix it with other data that they already had for those same people and, you know, do different types of attacks. Unfortunately, we will probably see some of these Twitter users targeted for different types of fraud on different types of websites and banks and others for a while. I do think that that's true if their information wasn't already out there. And I'm going to get to that because I found some really interesting data about this Twitter breach in particular. That will actually help provide data to the person who posted this, He said they've never seen any anything more than anecdotal data about how much new information is out there or what's actually happening. They got the information, like I said, last week from June 21st to January 2022, or sorry, June 2021. To January 2022. And there was a bug on Twitter's API that allowed those with API access to submit one piece of account information, like an email address, and then they'd receive any associated account information. This reminded me of how, like, we used to be able to access email domains. So, you know, some of the free email clients out there, you used to be able to put in their email address and it would come back with the date that it was that email account was opened. I loved those days. (laughs) (laughs) Now the closest you can get is the last scene, which is still helpful, but not the same as hearing from the email company itself that this is the date that they opened their account. Unfortunately, it was also being used by bad actors and, and there were different email companies that did it for different amounts of time. But one of them was kind of a long holdout. So we're probably all thinking of the same one. It's free to access, right? So people were able to put in a phone number or email address or maybe, I don't know, maybe their handle or their username and then get any information out of that. So, of course, the, the hackers know what they're doing and they kind of want to have some fun and just exploit whatever they can before. So before the bug was id and patched, the hackers exploited the flaw to scrape the data at scale. So that was how they got the 400 million accounts. There weren't passwords or DMs, private messages, but it did expose the connections between Twitter accounts. So... If someone has an account under their name, but then they have another one in a pseudonym or, for instance, what long ago when I was on the other podcast, we started a Twitter account. I don't even know if we tweeted on it. But if I had my own Twitter account and then it was linked to that one in the background, Twitter might show, oh, Carith Hendrick has the online broadcast Twitter. And then if we were trying to be anonymous behind that, you would then know who was linked to it. So that was Concerning because they're often pseud- pseudonymous, which I'd never actually heard that word before. I think I'm saying it right. pseudonymous. which means anonymous using a pseudonym. That's, those are words I know more. Along with their email address and phone numbers, they're linked to them. So this can potentially identify true identity of users. And so, yeah, the previous breach of 5.4 million users that got bigger headlines last summer did contain phone numbers and emails. But this larger database seems to only contain the email address, but not phone numbers. It's just something to note, because I do think that what is breached is even more important than who was breached or how many people, etc. So how valuable is that information? How can it be monetized? And these are all speculative, but I think pretty close. And a lot of them I came up with myself, but also in a couple of articles I was reading and other things I've seen this week. It can be used for extortion or selling identity information to other people, like their name and email address, on sensitive accounts they're using pseudonyms. Think about crypto users or whistleblowers within governments or businesses, people that are critical of authoritarian governments they could be imprisoned or worse. There's parody accounts. There's gossip accounts that post blind items that I'm sure there's one person in particular that's probably the most known in pop culture gossip and i already disclosed in previous episodes that is a hobby of mine human behavior is fascinating whether you are studying fraud or studying pop culture there's one called Dumois and I know for the longest time figuring out who Dumois was was a big deal to a lot of people and then it just kind of became this fun fascination I think celebrities wanted to know, how do they know so much information? But even when they'd be on podcasts or they'd record their voice, they'd use a voice changer. I do think that their name was, the name and true identity was leaked at some point, but they're still going by to them. That's just an example of somebody who did not want their true identity to get out. And that's a little more fun than talking about. This is a fun example compared to people that are critical of authoritarian governments. I can think of several, whether it's Russia or Brazil or North Korea or others. They're using a pseudonym for their own personal safety and their family safety. And now those are out. So that's probably, if I were to guess, if this were state sponsored or linked to a specific government, I would guess that would be one of the goals, like the main goal, but may not be. Most accounts that relied on a pseudonym were anonymous for a reason to keep themselves safe. Other things that can be done with just an email and password and a username I mean, email phishing attacks posing as twitter knowing they all have twitter accounts so sending out hey you probably heard about the twitter breach click here to log in and change your password while you're actually logging into a fake website things like that and then you can combine it with other information either from OSINT like open source intelligence online that's accessible like phone number address employer you can find out on LinkedIn I mean, there's just so much information about us or with previously breached data to commit other types of fraud. You can also enter emails into haveibeenpwned.com to reveal previously hacked passwords. So you can then combine them with the password that you have from Twitter and the other passwords that have been leaked from other data breaches and see, oh, they're the same one. So they're probably using that across everything that they work on. Or oh, they're all around the same university name or Marvel character or and they all have the same word with the year that they opened their account. Okay, that's a really good starting point for credential stuffing and, and brute force, et cetera. So those are just some of the things that can be done and are done. So this is the interesting information. So Troy Hunt is the founder of How I Been Pwned. And if you are in front and you don't know about that website, A little surprised, but pwned.com So it's have I been owned, but instead of an O, it's a P. It ingests all data breach information and then allows users to put in their email address or their phone number, I think, too, and be able to see what's been compromised. It's very helpful to the users. It can also be helpful to fraudsters. But the thing is, like this information in Troy's defense, like this information is already out there. He's just made a receptacle that's public, that's open to the public for mostly for consumers to understand how susceptible they are to this. Anyway, he said that he ingested all of the data from the Twitter breach that was public, the two hundred million. So his went into his website's database. Ninety-eight percent of the t- around two hundred million email addresses had already been exposed in other breaches. <laughs> Sardine is now sponsoring Fraudology. And one of the reasons I've been so impressed by Sardine is their founder, Soups Ranjan. But after learning about the available options for online fraud detection, he became frustrated with the existing tools on the market. And as fellow fraud fighters, I think a lot of us know exactly the kind of tools he was frustrated with. The legacy fraud tools that just return a score or a signal or a yes, no, maybe without your team getting to understand all of the aggregated data or the value attributed to each data point that goes into calculating that score or the vendor who won't give you your company's data for your own models and their own user interface was probably an afterthought. And let's be honest, Soup wasn't the only one who's been frustrated by the status quo in fraud technology. But not all of us are able to rage quit our jobs, recruit a few of the smartest risk engineers we've ever known, and go build a fraud platform that is truly built by the fraud squad for the fraud squad. A platform for KYC, AML, AML, So yeah, 98% of around 200 million email addresses were already known. Maybe not the passwords, but the email addresses. And there's enough that you can do with email addresses, right? Business email compromise. You can do ransomware, romance scams, phishing scams, etc. You can try to do forgot password, but if you don't have access to the email inbox, it doesn't help that much. But unless it's, yeah, there are ways, but... I'm trying not to go into too many rabbit holes today because I have so much I want to talk about in so little time. So anyway, 98% of the two, around 200 million email addresses had already been exposed in other data breaches. Okay, and I agree with that, right? It doesn't make data, so of course I agree with it. But that doesn't surprise me at all. However, 2% of all of those is still 400 or 4 million new email addresses that weren't previously known. Now, maybe some of those are bond addresses. Maybe those are, they're old, they're sale, they're whatever, but still 4 million is a lot of new email addresses to be able to do damage and have new victims. So I don't think that's anything this needs at. I think 4 million is still a lot. Now, is it 2%? Yeah, absolutely. So I think we can both be right on that. Trey Hunt sent out notification emails to over a million of his 4 million subscribers on how they've been pwned he said it was the first time he's ever sent out an email to more than seven figures or oh, to over a million people all at once to say hey your information was part of this twitter breach definitely change your password on twitter if you show that password with anything else definitely change that etc cetera, etc cetera. he also said that he doesn't think that this specific breach will have a significant long-term impact because so much of the email info- information was already out there already i agree with that too and I said that to the post. I agree that this probably isn't gonna have a giant, it's not gonna be a tipping point like the Equifax breach or the OPM breach or the Target and Home Depot breach. Like those we remember because either they were so large or because it was new information that was breached and it led to whole new types of fraud. I don't think that's that Twitter's that. Now, do I think that LastPass might be? Yeah. I think only time will tell. For a lot of reasons, it depends on who got access to it, how they're going to disseminate it, how they want to monetize it, etc. How they easily they can get access to those vaults. But those are all. I am concerned that one could be one of those cornerstone breaches. But too early to tell. But he said that the bigger concern than the fraud piece, and I agree, is that it will de-anonymize people who wanted to maintain their privacy. And that's the exact quote from him, especially those who did this to maintain their safety. So I'm concerned about that as well. While that may not be a fraud impact or payment fraud or a online abuse issue, it still can be concerning and really highlights just the importance of keeping your consumer's data safe. I know that is more your cybersecurity department's function, but it still can be important. And it also impacts customer trust. Now, I will say Unfortunately, Twitter's customer trust was already on the break for so many other reasons, one of which I had an episode about in late November, I think, when they got a new CEO and all that followed there. But especially the fact that they no longer really have a trust and safety department and that I knew in trust and safety and in payments has left, as well as their chief trust and safety officer. I think customer trust was already an issue, but that definitely can impact when you already have your customer's trust, for sure. So diving into a couple more of the points from my perspective of why I still think that data breaches matter to online fraud and to the online fraud industry. The first one is that not all data for every consumer in the U.S. or the world is out there and available. Not all fraudsters or fraud organizations have access to all of the data and information that's been exposed. A lot of it. But not all of it. And some of them are still a lot of the new stuff is being sold underground in private private dark web forums or on some Telegram private chats as well and Discord as well. And they are those are the fresh data, right? That's The fresh information. I did think it was interesting. I, I meant to point out earlier, but something that the original poster on LinkedIn said about two year old emails, email addresses. I guess I was really confused by that because I had one of my email addresses for 16, 17 years. And I've had the other one for eight. And especially if you've worked for the same employer for a long time, you're going to have that for as long as you're guessing that your email address hasn't changed. So I'm trying to look for that line really fast just to say it again. Specific users were always going to be targeted. If the recent Twitter leak of two-year-old email addresses causes even one incremental fraud event, I'll be shocked. I was like, gosh, two-year-old. I think it's more like 10 or 11, and now they have so many accounts linked to them that they probably forgot about most of them. That would be my case for sure, I think. So I just found that interesting. I was like, do people really change their email addresses every two years? Is that? I think it's important to change your password every six months if you can, but I'll take two years. I'll take any amount of time if somebody changes their password on a regular basis. But emails, I don't know. It was just interesting to me. I was like, I don't know. I think there's a lot people that haven't had email addresses for a very long time, but I that would be interesting to me if that's something that people do on a regular basis. Now, maybe the percentage of people in fraud that do that is probably different than others. There's one front fighter in particular, and I know he listens to this often, but so he'll know who I'm talking about, but he changes his phone number every six months because he doesn't want fraudsters to get it. And I'm like, what? But every time you text me and say, hey, this is blah, I don't know it's you. So now when he does it, he like says something that only I would know or that only he would know about me, right? Hey, is your daughter still interested in going into X field? Or hey, is your dog still doing this? Whatever it is, because he knows I'll be skeptical. But that is a lit to me. It's quite. But also I'm like, how would Francis get your phone to work? But he also does a little bit more, a little more risky fraud investigations and sometimes has to go not undercover, but I don't know. It's a little bit more intense than just payments. So maybe that's why. But. I don't think a lot of people do that, but more importantly, different data sets allow for different types of fraud. And I mentioned that earlier. The biggest one, especially with email, is the fact that I'm encouraged that this is a lesser percentage than it was a few years ago. I remember five years ago, the statistic was around 82% of all consumers reused their passwords. In a recent SkyCloud report for 2022, they said that 60% of all users reused their passwords, or getting somewhere now. Granted, there's a lot of them that use password managers, which I'm a big fan of, except for the fact that not if they get breached and the information within that breach is accessible. It's one thing if they get breached, but all the passwords are ha- are encrypted and all insulted and all those things, and they're very secure and they can't get into the vault. But path was a little different from everything I read from security experts. If you get the email password combination, obviously account takeovers on it. Any platform that anyone uses online is going to be rampant. Account takeovers on banking, e-commerce, email, clients, crypto, so many things. Because again, 60% reuse their passwords. And even more than that, and I don't know this percentage, but even more of them use similar passwords that are guessable. right? Their kids' names, their mom's birthday, something. I... Was guilty of that too. And for the first several years I was on the internet because there wasn't such thing as account takeovers. So even though I was in fraud, it was like, oh, I'll just use the same one because it's easy. There's a lot of security people, experts that are saying now that your passwords are much safer in a written down somewhere in your house than they are anywhere else. And I, so to that. In some cases, it depends on how many people have access to your house. It depends on so many other things, but maybe the case for some people. And if they gain access to somebody's email inbox, it's even worse, right? Multi-factor authentication. They can delete confirmation emails. They can say that they forgot a password at a company if they don't have the password. If the passwords that they have for that user aren't working, then they can just say, oh, request. I forgot my password. They send a one-time password to the email. The has access to the email inbox. So they do that. We see that quite a bit. Even if people just get phone numbers, there's phishing via SMS, via text message, right? All these texts where, hey, David, are we still golfing at 10? And they're hoping that you write back and go, hey, this isn't David. Sorry. And then you strike up a conversation. I know that's very common for peg butchering scams, which are really these very rapid rising crypto scams that are impacting consumers. And I plan to have one of the biggest experts on that topic join me soon on a Tuesday episode of Fraudology in the next month or two. So we'll talk more about that. But that one is huge. I and mean, they just need a phone number, right? We don't really have phone books anymore. So even though you're like, okay, most phone numbers are out there, they can guess. It doesn't, that depends, right? But in those cases, they're casting a wide net. But there's others that can do spam and scam calls and There's just a lot of things you can do with a phone number. You can do a SIM swap if you have a little bit more information about the person. You can put the phone number in a reverse lookup and you can get their name and their address and everything else, right? Those are things I mean by OSINT, like open source intelligence, things you can get on the web. It's, you know so easy to find the other pieces of data for that email addresses alone are great for phishing emails, business email compromise, ransomware, even just a mailing address. And this is something I learned from Brett Johnson, my former podcast partner for the online broadcast. He was saying that just even a mailing address from junk mail, and I totally believe him and I've seen it now since, but this surprised me when he shared it five or six years ago when we first met, that even just stealing someone's junk mail can be enough of a starting point to steal their identity. I know. I used to always cut out my address and then put it in the shredder on any junk mail. Now I actually got this thing and I can't remember the name of the brand, but it's pretty interesting. It's a small business out of Oregon that it's like a stamp that rolls over it and it's all these different letters and numbers and you really can't see it. And it, that way, any junk mail, anything I throw away, I'm doing that too. Am I paranoid? Maybe, but I'd much rather do that and have anything else. And if I have a smaller child, I think they'd have so much fun doing that. I just do it quickly. Right? So I could go on and on, right? Obviously, if you have a social security number, date of birth, et cetera, you can do the whole full identity theft package with new lines of credit for a car, for a credit card, for a banking loan, whatever you want. But don't forget, I shared this last year. There was a marketplace that was noticing that they were having seller fraud, which, you know, where sellers on their marketplace would say that they were selling an item and people would buy it, but then they'd never get the item. And that's not super common for marketplaces as much anymore because they crack down on it pretty quickly. It happens, but just not as much. And most marketplaces guarantee it, like Subhub does for tickets. When I interviewed Robert Caps and Eric Bowles, that was a big point that we talked about from their time there. But this marketplace said that what they realized the motivation was is everyone who said, Hey, I didn't get my item, but I did have somebody open in like a buy now pay later account in my name and oh what do you know this particular buy now pay later company only requires your name and email and address and phone they don't do a credit check so they don't need a social security number so these people were and yeah you can be argued there's so much breached data out there why did they have to go to this level of effort but they were right maybe because there wasn't that or they wanted fresh information or they didn't know how to buy it. I don't know. There could be a million reasons, but the end game of posting a fake listing on a marketplace was just to get those pieces of information from the buyer so that they could go open a Buy Now Play Later account in their name and go, and then they get sent to collect, the real person would get sent to collections by that Buy Now Play Later company. Now, the Buy Now Play Later company has a lot of issues and I know that they are discovering them as they as every month that goes by but I along with several others have tried our best to alert them specifically that those were happening lots and lots of fraud was happening a year and a half ago so I we can lead horses to water you don't even do it like as extortion right I would never call and say hey you're having this problem so you need to hire me no I just want you to know you have this problem so you can fix it but I think I talked about it months late months before that some companies they misidentify their issue they think that they have a first-party loan issue where they think people are genuinely setting up for their own account and not paying, when really they have a fraud issue. Those people aren't setting up for their own accounts. So that can be a real danger too. I, like I said in that note, like I've heard many merchants anecdotally say, yeah, we see an uptick when there's a new list out there. It's more about when the lists go out there than actually when the data breach happens. And sometimes that can be months or weeks later. So again, it's hard to know, right? If you can't, it's hard to do the one-to-one because it can be months later, it can be tied to other things. You don't have insight into every single database to know exactly if it was used or not. Really the only thing we can look at to even know as a consumer, if you had your information used for fraud. And this is something that Miriam brought up on this past Tuesday's episode when we talked about, Marianne Miller brought up, uh, when we talked about New Year's predictions on Tuesday. And that is that there's really no consumer notification company for anything beyond credit lines, right? If somebody opened up an account for a peer-to-peer money transfer company in your name, you may never know it. Somebody opened up an a, account with an e-commerce company or a uh, fintech or any company that doesn't hit your credit report, you may not know it unless they're using your method of payment. But there's so many other types of fraud that don't use those things, but they're still using your information. So, you know, as a whole. like The other thing is that I find interesting is what where the data is coming from. So what type of company is it? What data do they have, right? What data does that company collect, as well as what data, more importantly, what data the hacker got access to? That's going to tell you, it's going to give you a pretty good idea of what type of fraud you should expect to see in the next few months-ish. And then, but also where the com who the company is right what's their customer demographic is it younger is it older is it you can then guess a lot of other things are they mostly for affluent customers is it high-end luxury items is it lower priced it just there's a lot of things that, that that are important and they matter towards the value of the data as well as how much will be monetized and really what how much they can get out of it how much juice they can sweet the or so to speak are they Internet savvy? Do they have a lot of internet history? Are these consumers that don't overlap with previous data breaches? Is this a, a group of people that may not have been in the Twitter breach or any other breach that we could list for years? Wow, that's a pretty good list. So that depends the value of the list, but it also depends on the value of the monetization and how much, like I said, how much they can get out of consumers or businesses or banks. They don't care, and they will cross pollinate all the time. Okay, so as I wrap up, here's a few things I just cannot of share. I did try to find some data. I couldn't have spent over an hour doing this, so I, I just couldn't spend any more time. I'm sure there's other pieces of data out there, and that's one reason why I'd love to hear from you. I'm happy to do a part two on this, if this is something that anyone has contrary thoughts to me, as well as anything else to back up, why you think. That data breaches do have a huge impact on online fraud, or that they don't. But in 2021, there were more than 4,100 data breaches, with around 22 billion records exposed, according to the 2021 year-end report of data breach. It was called the Data Breach Quick View by Flashpoint. I always like to give credit where credit is due. Why would 4,000 or why would 4,100 data breaches still happen in 2021 if there wasn't a need or a demand for a supply of data, but they said that names and social security numbers were most targeted again because they can lead to the most liquidation or most monetization at the end. There's so many different things that can be done with that, and payment card data was least attractive. It was only included in three percent of reported breaches, and I believe that for so many reasons. One, because of PCI and other payment security initiatives. I was just at the dentist the other day, and dental hygienist asked what I did. I going to take a deep breath because it's not a simple thing. I'm a nurse or I'm a teacher. I told her I was in online fraud prevention, like identity theft and stolen cards. And she said, oh, then you're who I need to talk to. And I'm like, but she's had a fair amount of fraud on her cards recently. Three different cards reissued. And so I gave her a few pointers about why that might be. And to look at her statements and see if she was going to the same gas station or the same grocery store or the same something else. But what she first said was, but I didn't even link it to any accounts online. So I don't know how it was, how my bank how my credit card number was stolen and that's such a big misconception and it drives me crazy sometimes when like, no, I the majority of hacks and breaches actually come from like card present P- POS software that just shoots all that information and copies it off to a fraudster but I again trying so hard not to go down rabbit holes but this is such a big topic. SpyCop's 2020, 20, blah, 2022 annual identity exposure report Sorry, that was a lot of words to say at once. They, so this was from 2021 data because I don't think, I didn't see a 2023 report yet. And that makes sense. It just started. But they said that 70% of all users were exposed in 2021 breaches. Oh, sorry. So 70% of all of the users that were exposed. So all of of all the people that had their data stolen in 2021 through all the data breaches, 75% of those users, of those passwords were ones that had already previously been compromised in previous breaches. So if you had your Hulu or your Yahoo account exposed with your password to those companies and then using those because it's happened and they're in the headlines and they're not throwing anyone under the bus anymore than a simple Google search could do. If you had your email and password leaked in that breach and then you still were using that password for that account or other accounts, That's what part of the 70% is. I'm grateful that the password manager I use told me that. And I think a lot of them are starting to because 70% is a really high number of people who have had their password already exposed. But that also does give this original poster a point, right? Yeah, that data is out there. Does it mean that it's out there in the exact same hands as it was before? Probably not. But that's dangerous. That oh, I wish we had more consumer education on this, but I can't clone myself. But I, there's times I really wish I could just volunteer all my time to just do that. Not just what they need to do, but the why is the most important. This one also scared me for the U.S. 60% of the users who had their data exposed that had .gov, .gov email addresses were also reusing passwords that had been exposed in previous breaches. That should be flagged for sure. <laughs> I really hope that they're not using that for any of their government access, whether it's email or anything else. But still, that can lead to a lot of things from a security point of view that, especially these days, we do need to be conscious of because it's all moving digitally and online. 1.7 million of the accounts that were exposed that SpyCub looked at in this study had 2021 in the password. So it's just the same word every year, but they just changed the thing here's the one i oh my gosh the number one reused password is still drum roll password come on people educate your friends and family we can't do it all ourselves and unfortunately or fortunately because you're so busy protecting your company and your bank and everything else like we just we don't have time and unfortunately for consumers there's not one group, but there's a few smaller groups. ARP does a great job. Wiser W-I-Z-E-R does a great job at free security training and they're doing some great jobs on TikTok and others to create really fun and fascinating information. But still, like the fact that we're still right passwords still number one password. This shows that these are your customers' accounts. And I know that I, I want to say, yeah, I think that this is something I talked about on my last episode of 2022 with Gil. And if not It might have been on last week's. I'm sorry, my brain has scrambled a bit, but I think it was also on last week's where I think it's really important for companies to start taking initiative and educating your customers in this way. Hey, we noticed that the password that you used for our site was already exposed in a data breach. Hey, we think whatever. Yeah, we do a lot behind the scenes and that's great. But I think that builds customer trust. Now, I understand your communications department and marketing is going to not be happy about it, but I think in 2022, that is a much different conversation than I tried to have with my communications team in 2010 or two, even 2012. It's, hey, our customers are expecting us to educate them on these things. And that will actually help build trust. It won't make them think, oh, they're synonymous with fraud. It'll help them go, oh, wow, they want to keep us safe. We. One of those case studies that on the episode that I recently replayed over the holidays was a company that tested did a, basically an A/B test of what happens when we do all of the account takeover reduction steps behind the scenes, and what happens when we tell our customers. And they saw revenue shoot up from those customers. It was insane. I can't remember the exact number, but it was a lot. So those customers were like, "Wow, they're looking out for us. That makes me trust them." And I, and trust equals money. So, those are things that you can use to say, Hey, it's time that we do this, not just to protect ourselves, but to protect our customers and to build trust, but mostly to protect yourself from account takeovers. And that can be the main goal. Ultimately, to answer the question, do all data breaches result in a lot of fraud right away? No, not usually, not anymore. Sometimes data is held onto or stored because there's a plethora of it. There's just too much data for some registers. Or sometimes it's sold months after it's exposed, especially when it's information that doesn't go stale. And obviously passwords don't go stale if 70% are still reusing the ones that were breached already years before. Or obviously your date of birth is never going to change. Your government ID number depends on your government, but at least in the US for social security numbers, it's really hard to change that. And then you have to change it with your employer and so many other places. It's really a pain. It shouldn't be, but it is. It should be. I guess that would add to more problems. But for the victims of identity theft that have just gotten their credit wrecked, that's where I say that. But it can also feed into a CRM, like a a place where you can keep all your customers' data, like, but for fraud, right? Or patchworked with other data. Another question, is all online data a result of breached? Or is all online fraud a result of breached data? No, not always. So there's so many ways to get consumer info, right? From one-on-one targeting them to looking online, to buying it for different groups. Different groups use and obtain their data in different ways. So it isn't as simple. It's not binary, right? It's like not one or the other. It's really nuanced. Just like everything else in fraud. I do I think we can safely say that any new data breach can lead to online fraud. I don't think we can say it will never. I think we can say it can. And it's still important to keep an eye on the it's still important to keep an eye on the sources that are being fed into those pipelines that will eventually be used to monetize your company. Is it the only place you need to keep an eye on? Do you need to freak out and say the world's ending every time there's a data breach? No, I agree in that way. But at the same time, it's It is one way that more fraud can be enabled and the more different types of data and different types of fraud makes it more possible. I think I've probably said that 20 times today. So if you remember anything, (laughs) remember that. So bringing it back to that original LinkedIn post that really got me thinking, obviously, I don't think either one of us is 100% right. And I didn't mean to have it sound like I 100% think that all data is going to be acted on in the next month, and it's all new. No, it's very nuanced. But I, like I said, like with most things in anti-fraud, like the answer's nuanced. And it's with a lot of dependencies too. But I will say that I do think that it's risky to make a statement that can be used as an excuse for apathy or laziness by consumers or companies. Saying that there's zero impact of data breaches can give permission to a person or a company or a fraud manager or anyone else to let their guards down, to not change their passwords, to not invest in innovative solutions that will catch newer fraud tactics. And it can allow vendors to be complacent in developing new products that will enable their clients to identify newer fraud. I often say you can't fight today's fraud with yesterday's tools. That is just a fact. And I will continue to harp on solution providers like I did last week towards the end of the episode and I knew a lot of people appreciated it but it's just the truth you cannot whether you were acquired or IPO'd or whatever your exit was that's not the exit for your customers and Fred is continually changing it is continually adapting and morphing and changing if your solution is not doing that your clients will move on to another solution eventually but they will lose millions of dollars in the meantime I wouldn't want that on my conscience. That's just me. So I think that if we say data breaches don't matter, everything's already out there, there's not going to be any new spikes in fraud. Oh, there's not really any new fraud. There's not really a big spike in fraud, whatever. Then that allows us to be complacent. It allows us to not innovate. It allows us to have an excuse not to do more. And To me, I've just seen too much and talked to way too many people that fight fraud on a daily basis and I learn something every day and that's something I love about fraud. But I do know that there's some people in their career that get to a point where they're like, I know everything I need to know about fraud. then that means that your information is going to be stale real fast because the fact that I'm learning something new every day means that there's continually new types of ways to monetize and exploit all different types of companies. And sometimes it depends on the company. So if you've only worked for one type of company, you might only know about one subset of fraud. You may not have ever experienced other types or seen it, or understand it. So just something to think about. But like I said at the beginning, I would just love to know what you think. I thought it was interesting that not everyone thought this, and so maybe you don't, right? So I'd be interested to know, A, was this an interesting topic for you? But B, what do you think? What's your perspective on this topic? Do you, Have you seen any information that can back up either side or like that? Because even more than other topics, I'm just curious to know what other people are thinking. The best way to reach out to me is on linkedin however i can't always reply to everything about the podcast but i do flag it my assistant is amazing she's new she works 10 hours a week but i am so excited to have her and i'm trying to make that help me be a little more superhuman and be able to reply to more things and i know that one of the things she's doing is flagging all posts that mention the podcast so i will at least read all of them And try to respond when I can. If you need me to reply to something sooner, feel free to just ping it to put it at the top of my inbox. That does work most of the time. And I apologize. I just, there's a lot going on. But I would say that just according to my LinkedIn inbox and my email, there sure is a lot of frog happening. Oh, anyway. I'm going to wrap up this episode today. I know that I'm supposed to be keeping it under 45 minutes, and I'm sorry that I went a little bit over, but I just wanted to pack as much into this as possible. I think it's a fascinating topic, but I also think it's really important for people to understand like where is it coming from and what the factors are, especially if we're starting out 2023 with two really large breaches. We don't know what the rest of the year has to hold in stores. So we all need to buckle up and be prepared, and we'll get through it together. All right, I can't wait to talk to you more next week. Bye.